Welcome to Brand New, I am Audrey Dove. Artificial intelligence can streamline processes, improve efficiency, and provide valuable insights. Zooming in on its impact on the legal industry, AI even excels at tasks such as legal research, document analysis, and contract review, enabling lawyers to handle large volumes of data more quickly and accurately than ever before. However, some of the legal profession fear how AI will impact their jobs, and that fear isn't unfounded. Goldman Sachs estimated in a 2023 report that 44% of current work tasks could be automated in the legal field. But what does AI mean for the legal practice? Is it the threat that we most commonly hear about or an opportunity to evolve, or maybe both? In short, is AI the revolution that many talk about for the legal world, and how can we prepare for it? Our guest today is no less than Richard Suskind. Richard is a renowned expert and visionary in the field of law and technology. And with a career spanning several decades, he has made significant contributions to our understanding of how artificial intelligence is transforming the legal profession. Richard is not only a prolific author, but also a sought-after speaker and consultant, advising governments, law firms, and legal organizations on how to adapt to the digital age. His work has been translated into 18 languages, and he has been invited to speak in over 60 countries. He has written 10 books, including The Future of Law, Tomorrow's Lawyers, with three editions, The Future of the Professions, with Daniel Suskind, and the last edition was published in 2022, and Online Courts and the Future of Justice, with two editions. He has also contributed more than 150 columns to the Times, and in 2000, he was appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire by Her Majesty the Queen. In 2022, it was announced that His Majesty the King had approved Richard's appointment as an honorary king's counsel. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. So thanks to the recent development of large natural language processing models, artificial intelligence tools are currently being applied to many legal tasks such as research, e-discovery, due diligence, litigation prediction analytics, contract review or drafting, and other document generation and management. Richard, can you provide a, a kind of overview of the impact that AI currently has on the legal ecosystem? Certainly. I think it is true to say that in November of last year, with the launch of ChatGPT, lawyers became far more aware of the way in which AI might impact on their work. But the field of AI and law actually is far older than last November. There was a first generation of AI systems, which we called rule-based expert systems, and they were developed in the 1980s, and that technology is still used today. The best way to understand this is in terms of a big decision tree or flowchart. So you can take a complex piece of legislation, for example, and you can 
offer a path through which people who are non-expert can navigate. So the idea of the rule-based expert system is essentially to create a, a decision tree. And if you take automated document assembly systems, document automation, almost all of these work on the basis of that first generation of AI. Then there came the second generation based on what is known as machine learning. And there are broadly two forms of machine learning system in law. The first we can call predictive and the second we can call generative. The predictive systems are perhaps best exemplified by the kinds of technologies that can predict the likely outcome of a court decision. So in the United States, for example, a system called Lex Machina, for many years it's been said that it can predict the outcome of patent disputes more accurately than any patent lawyer. Interestingly, it doesn't make these predictions by searching across the full text of judgments. It has instead records of past cases, who the judge was, who the lawyer was, the nature of the claim, the size of the claim, the name of the party, and so forth. And it turns out that we can make more accurate predictions using computational statistics than by using the legal method. But predictive technology is also used in, for example, document review and litigation, where you have a large number of documents to review. You train a system essentially to help identify or isolate those documents that a human expert lawyer would identify as the most relevant for a case. And we also use that same technology, for instance, in due diligence work and transaction work. Again, we train these systems and they can identify the contracts or the clauses within contracts that perhaps most urgently need attention. So broadly speaking, what we do in these machine learning systems is we gather together huge amounts of past data about cases, about transactions, about documents and so forth. We gather them together and these systems can make predictions on the basis of this large amount of past data. The second sort of machine learning system, also using huge amounts of data, are called generative systems. And although they have been around for a few years now, as I said, they became very public in November of last year with the launch of ChatGPT. Now, these systems are generative, which means they generate content so that when you interact with them, and the, the chat bit is essentially the mimicking of human conversation, when you would interact with such a system, you could ask it, for example, to compose a poem or to paint or generate a landscape or generate music or videos or even write code. So these systems on request can generate content. Again, they do so on the basis of huge amounts of past data. But whereas something like Google is a search engine, these systems are a little like an answer engine. They actually answer, you could ask a question of the system and it will give a plausible answer. Now, the systems can also draft documents, compare documents, summarize documents. They can visualize documents. They can organize evidence. They can organize arguments and provide arguments. So 
they are beginning to undertake many of the tasks that historically we thought only human lawyers could undertake. But the final thing I want to say in this introduction is that ChatGPT and its successor systems and competitor systems are still very much in their early stage. It is the single most amazing system I have seen in my 40 years of working on AI, but I want to urge your listeners to appreciate that we're still at the foothills. And I think a lot of the commentary on AI and law is hugely overstating the likely impact in the short term. But more importantly, I think it's understating the likely impact in the long term. Just to rebound on what you said about ChatGPT, there are more paradigm shifts that can make maybe certain legal professions use less in some way than uh, resources that create efficiencies or both. I think this is a very important point to make. It's perhaps not of ChatGPT 3.5, which is the version being used today, but if you project ahead to maybe GPT 7 or 8, you will have systems that are not just automating streamlining, improving what we currently do in law, but they will actually be changing the very nature of legal problem solving and legal risk management. If you think, for example, of your own work as a senior in-house lawyer, much of what you do is trying to anticipate legal problems rather than solve legal problems. And I believe that new generations of AI systems will be able to, as I often say, put a fence at the top of the cliff rather than an ambulance at the bottom. I just want to urge again that ChatGPT really is a new chapter in a story of AI that's maybe 50 years old in law. It's absolutely not the final invention. There'll be many more inventions in AI and law and probably many that are more impressive than ChatGPT, but it offers an early insight into how profoundly the technology might change the way we practice law and administer justice. So many lessons have been learned during the pandemic with all courts going fully online and everyone on the org chart being required to navigate all the corresponding tools on its own, uh, from Zoom to e-filing through contract management platforms. Do we still have more to learn from what happened and more structural and long-term consequences? Wasn't it fascinating, although very frightening at the time, but just how adaptable lawyers and judges turned out to be? We always say, and I always say, that lawyers are conservative, and they are. But the truth is, when we needed to change in the legal profession and the court system, we managed to change. So there's a lesson there. If you take the courts, for example, I set up a service known as Remote Courts Worldwide in March of 2020 where we tried to provide information about countries moving from traditional physical court systems to remote hearings, mainly hearings by video. We now have maintained that system and there are over 170 jurisdictions, 170 countries in which at least some of their hearings are now held remotely rather than in person. And I think it changed many people's minds because Many people felt that the way the courts are run and the way that lawyers function couldn't really be changed. It could be perhaps improved and streamlined, but not fundamentally changed. And I think the pandemic opened people's eyes to entirely new ways of working. 
It encouraged us to ask fundamental questions. I often say, is court a service or a place? Do we really need physically to come together in the same place to resolve our differences? Or might there be different ways of conducting and resolving legal disputes? And in the same argument, one can say that legal practice can be conducted not simply from a traditional law office, but often from anywhere in the world. So I think it challenged our conception of how it is that one operates as a, a lawyer and a judge. But as with ChatGPT, I think we are once again still at the foothills. We were simply automating. I have this distinction, Audrey, between automation and innovation. Automation is basically computerizing what already goes on. And innovation, in my terms, is using technology to allow you to do things that previously weren't possible. Now, I thought during the COVID period, understandably, what we simply did was automated existing ways of working. We didn't fundamentally change the business model of law firms. What we did do was we enabled law firms to work through technology to keep their businesses running. Now, I could see a future, and this may sound science fictional, when using virtual reality, for example, we find entirely new ways of meeting with clients and resolving our disputes in the metaverse. So once again, I say to you that this is an ongoing story for those lawyers, who, and I understand this, who want to think, well, that's technology. We, we understood what technology could do during COVID and we've accepted some of that and now we can continue with that little bit of technology. I think this is misconceived. There are many more advanced technologies to come. So we are the foothills of change. You emphasize in the most recent edition of the book that you co-authored with Daniel Suskin, The Future of the Professions, an upcoming intensive need for training. What are the skills that attorneys and even law students can brush up on or even must start developing today to be prepared for what's coming? Such a good question. The fundamental question we ask is, what are we training young professionals to become? And I fear in law, most of our law schools are still generating 20th century lawyers who are very good at one-to-one -one consultative advisory service for a print-based industrial society. But we're not really any longer in a print-based industrial society. We're in an AI-based digital society. And one-to-one -one consultative advisory service will not dominate, in our view, towards the end of this decade and into the 2030s. So the fundamental premise I want to put to you is that as our systems become more advanced, as our systems become more capable and take on many of the tasks that we used to think could only be undertaken by lawyers, you have a very basic choice. Do you compete with these emerging systems or do you get involved with building these systems? By competing, you're saying, there's still a lot that I can do as a lawyer, a traditional lawyer, that a machine will never do, and that will be the focal point of my career or the focal point of my business. Now, I think that's short-sighted because if you accept our machines are becoming increasingly capable, there will be less and less activities and tasks that will be distinctively human. So I suggest the alternative strategy for your career and for your business is to become involved in building the systems that replace our old ways of working. 
building the systems that will replace our old ways of working. If that's the case, then we need to encourage a new generation of professionals who can not only provide traditional service, but have the skills, at least some of these, to be involved in building these systems. That might be in system design, knowledge engineering, could be in risk management, could be in data science. And what I list in my book, Tomorrow's Lawyers, is 15 different skills, all focused upon building these systems that will be used in the future by people who have legal problems. So I don't think, and you did correct yourself in the question, it's not just brushing up on and improving existing skills. I think it's a fundamentally new range of tools that young professionals will need to embrace. Very eye-opening. Let's talk about innovation. Innovation, as you mentioned, is one of the terms that has dominated many discussions and debates over the last past years. And in the new preface of your book uh, that I mentioned already, The Future of the Professions, you make a clear difference between first-generation innovation and second-generation one that, as you say, value reality over perception. You even write in a pretty self-explanatory way that the first generation claim they are funny, while the second tell jokes. Could you guide us in the world of second generation legal innovators? Well, there aren't many of them around is the point. What we were doing was simply recording our experiences as we visited many law firms and other professional firms since 2015 when we wrote the first version of the book. And... In the second edition, published in 2022, we were essentially reflecting on what we'd seen as we traveled the world. And there has been the most enormous noise about innovation in the legal world, for example. But when we peeled back the layers and actually had a look at what was going on, we found more evidence of what we called first-generation innovation rather than second-generation innovation. Now, at the highest level, first-generation innovation is essentially process improvement, whereas the second generation is changing the business model. And these are very different. The first generation tends to be more about marketing and making a noise in the community, whereas the second generation is more substantive, actually bringing about change. The first generation is often about automating pre-existing processes. The second generation is about transforming the way the professional work is done. In first-generation innovators, we find usually in a law firm, for example, there's only a few partners engaged, whereas in a second-generation firm, there will be many partners engaged. In a first-generation firm or legal business, we'll find actually the innovation has very little impact on the profits or revenue. On the second-generation, the innovative work will actually be fundamental to the health of the business. Finally, and there are many other criteria, but in a first-generation innovation firm, it tends to be short-term tactical projects, prototypes and experiments, whereas in second-generation, it's longer-term, it's strategic, it's fully operational systems. And we said as we travelled the world that we have not yet seen a fully second-generational professional firm in law or elsewhere even the most apparently advanced firms, mostly they are engaged in first-generation innovation. I say again, that's more process improvement than fundamental change. But if we really want to meet the needs of clients, whether they be general counsel such as yourself or individual citizens, I think we need to do more than simply 
make our current ways of working more efficient. I often say that all transformation projects in law end up as efficiency projects. And that's true, I think, because lawyers have all sorts of exciting transformational hopes and aspirations. They launch their projects, but after six months, they get bored or impatient and they ask for low-hanging fruits and quick wins and lapse from transformation into efficiency projects. So in summary, I think, I'm afraid, a lot of the work that is so-called innovative remains fairly low level in its actual ambition, and most professional firms have not fundamentally changed, even in the last decade. How to start this new vision about innovation? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I think I often joke for major law firms, I say it's hard to convince a room full of millionaires that they have their business model wrong. So many law firms are not incentivized to change. They are only incentivized to be first-generation innovators. They are enjoying their current business model, and long may it continue, so they just want a more efficient version of what they have today. The answer, to some extent, lies with you as the client. Because I've always been surprised that clients are more demanding and discerning. So if you take something like document review and litigation, for well over a decade, it's been absolutely clear, for example, in the United Kingdom, the United States, that systems can outperform junior lawyers and paralegals in sorting through large bodies of documents in preparation for litigation. And yet that technology is still relatively rarely used. Now, the law firms prefer not to use them because they prefer to put large armies of young lawyers that they can charge out by the hour. But from the client's point of view, this simply doesn't make sense. And I see there are cultural obstacles here, and people are often within in-house legal departments nervous about instructing the use of on the use of technologies with which they're not familiar. But the drive has to come from the market. As long as the providers are doing well, they're unlikely to want to change. If that drive does then come, I think the most interesting change needs to be away from saying what we're doing in our firm is making what we've already done in the past more efficient to saying, let's revisit entirely uh, our business model. And that's usually a move away from the advisory service to packaging legal content, legal advice, legal guidance in the form of products and solutions. Very different way of looking at innovation. But innovation involves people. And the other thing to say is that it's not sufficient, as with first-generation innovators, just to have a few partners involved. You need the entire leadership of an organization involved. More than that, I believe you need to engage the entire workforce. So innovation is not simply a pillar, as some people would say. It, that pillar should be knocked over. It should be the foundations of all the business. Thank you so much, Richard. Uh, now I have a few rapid-fire questions for you. Okay. So the first one, the last time you used chatbots such as ChatGPT or Bard, and, and for what? Well, I'm actually, I'm using it today because I'm Jewish and it's the Jewish New Year, and I've got a little five-year-old granddaughter and two-year-old grandson, and I want to say a few words around the dinner table tonight about why we're celebrating and how we're celebrating, and... I've asked ChatGPT to generate a two-page summary of the New Year service and dinner that's suitable for a five-year-old. Now, that interestingly is ChatGPT, the original one. I'm using 3.5 just now. The recent trend that you believe to be most disruptive from a legal perspective. 
Do you mean amongst lawyers or amongst clients? Uh, let's say among lawyers. I think it has to be, and I'm not sure if this is a trend, but the most striking change in public conversation amongst lawyers is as a result of generative AI and chat GPT. I think while it hasn't brought and won't bring overnight change, it has given a sense to the legal community of what disruption might look and feel like. So it has been one of the most dramatic periods over the last nine months. I think a lot of what people say is ill-informed, uh, but nonetheless, it has brought into focus the real possibility of disruption. Book you have read recently and that you would recommend to our listeners? The book I've enjoyed most recently, and it's a, a very serious subject, is by a friend who's a Times journalist, uh, Daniel Finkelstein, who's written a book called Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad. And it's about how it is his parents survived the gulags and the concentration camps and came together in England. And it's both moving and informative, but written tremendously well and wonderfully researched. Thank you. Thank you so much, Richard. A lot of food for thought, so thank you again. Very great pleasure. Thank you for involving me. Our guest today was Richard Suskind, renowned expert and visionary in the field of law and technology. Thank you.